This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. In these conversations, we make sense of what's next. Join me, my co-hosts, and my guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hi, everyone. Stina Heikile here. I'm today's co-host of the Boundaryless Conversations podcast with Simone Cicero. Today, we're talking to Stowe Boyd, founder of Work Futures, where he explores critical themes of the future of work. Stowe is a top writer in economics, leadership, and futures on Medium, and also writes extensively about work technologies and serves as a Gigaom editor. You'll find all links to his work in the show notes. Stowe describes his calling as the ecology of work and the anthropology of the future. And in our conversations, we talk about how platforms contribute to changing the relationship between consumers and producers, and how this in turn leads to reshaping organizations as firms optimize for a low transaction cost economy. We also talk about fairness and the importance of distributed governance to be transparent and reliable, allowing for the players in an ecosystem to operate without constantly having to cover their backs. Here we go. Enjoy this insightful episode with Stovoid. So, Stove, today it's a pleasure for, for us to have you here uh, and be able to, to leverage on your deep understanding of Uh, how organizational models, but also the very concept of work uh, is uh, uh, evolving and uh, evolving across and, and through the, the, the new limitations that we are also uh, uh, witnessing, especially in these days of crisis, regarding the current mainstream ideas of how a large scale or, or any scale of organizations uh, work and what are the frames that we need to break and rethink when we think about work organizing and organizations in the 21st century. And uh, when, in preparation of this conversation, you, you share with us a couple of key ideas that you believe are important to interpret this transition. And, and the first one that I, I would love to discuss with you is this idea of uh, you know, the need to, to see and look at platforms as commons. And I'm really interested in understanding where this, is, this idea is coming from, from, from your experience. Well, um, there's been a quite a lot of interest in uh, this set of ideas, um, primarily driven by the nature of very successful internet giants that are based on platform economics. So one way to think about it is the, the riddle, how are Google search results like railroad shipping rates? In the United States and many other parts of the world, shipping has to be fair meaning railroads can't use the fact that they have ownership of the, of the railways as a means to control you know, the economics of, uh, of shipping across the country, which was in fact a problem. And so the, the answer to that riddle appears to come down to the question or the, the reality that it's good for us as a nation, as a, as a society, as a as an economy, if railroad shipping rates are fair, that is, they don't disadvantage commerce or the people who rely on commerce, uh, you know, shipping across railroads. Um, and so the, the reality is, it turns out that search results from Google may have to be treated as a, in the same kind of lens through what we have in the States as common carrier rules about fairness. And, and so we're seeing a lot of uh, regulatory response to that. And so there is a regulatory response 
a sort of immune system response, if you will, to the enormous potential for platforms to be unfair. And, and so the question comes down to what do we, the people, want our governments or ourselves to do about this? Can we treat platforms that we have come to depend on in and expect or impose rules of governance that make them fair uh, f- for us in a way that benefits everyone? Well, that's that's a very interesting uh, point, and I think uh, this has also been subject of uh, lots of discussion, especially if I remember well, something like ten uh, uh, or, or twelve uh, day, uh, sorry, months ago. Um, I remember there was this case of uh, discussion that uh, uh, Amazon was being regulated, for example, in India, in a way that prevented Amazon to sell its own stuff on uh, uh, on the marketplace. You know? so, so, and, and many were making these parallels saying, you know, we are used to regulate um, something like networks uh, or railroads or, or, or something that uh, that has such a this this crazy enabling importance for our the way we do trade for example and uh, uh, and I see I see the point that uh, and it's interesting also to connect these uh, with uh, some reflections that we did a few weeks ago with uh, Arthur Brock that was talking with us about Holochain and uh, uh, he brought up this idea of carrier that you also brought up with these uh, common carrier uh, rules and uh, uh, but in a way there was a, a slightly different so so i see two ways to to address this com- this carrier issue you know this uh, this idea that you were debating and one is the regulatory one and and another one is uh, i would say the revolutionary one so so somehow uh, you know people that are creating for example blockchain or or whole chain solutions uh, are looking at uh, at the carrier and 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 kind of thinking about how do we create another kind of carriers uh, and instead you are making the point that we should regulate them you know with with the antitrust so what what do you think about this other perspective and you know, also to so essentially to not to regulate platforms but create alternatives that are uh, governed uh, uh, differently, but not from the public, from, from the participants, I would say. Right now, so, yeah, exactly. The, 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 the example, once again, going back to the example of Google, you might imagine that someone would say, what we should do is create a nonprofit search engine that the platform owners would have to use, right? And, and sort of take it out of the hands of someone like Google and say, well, you know, this is too important for a single corporation to control. Or, you know, the regulatory path, which is what we did with railroads and what we did with, you know, uh, communications in the United States, too. Or is it simply a matter of requiring a voice inside the organization? Does the organization have to create some means of it involving others in the, the way that the platform runs? And, you know... If you look at the tradition of very successful commons, like uh, the aqueduct system in southwest United States, which goes back hundreds of years, where the participants themselves agree on how the commons is shared or the, uh, the sharing of uh, the pasture land in the Alps by the, the uh, cow herders, you know, the people that are trying to uh, you know, create milk from cows, and they worked collectively so that they don't diminish the value for everyone by overgrazing or over 
watering in the case of the aqueduct system in the Southwest. But it, it's not clear since we have a monopolistic player already owning the thing that we've come to depend on. It's not a situation where it's some federation of players who are sharing the common. So, you know, there is it's, it's sort of this formless mess. Everybody uses Google to search, but we don't have any kind of representational entity. No, no institution represents our interests aside from governments at the moment. And so that's why I think we're seeing, in a sense, the imposition will be coming from you know, the EU. In the United States, it winds up being, uh, the, you know, the attorneys general of the various states are the one that are, are, you know, attempting to regulate because there's this concept of a natural monopoly. You know, the, the AT&T phone system was a natural monopoly. It made sense when the system was being rolled out, there'd be one country, one company that would create the entire system so that it would work. So that it could, you know, be built in the first place. And then it could work. But then ultimately, the, the power that that gave to AT&T was deemed to be you know, dangerous to the economy. And so it was broken into pieces uh, in order to you know, end the monopoly and open up you know, the phone marketplace to p- competition so that you know, uh, the prices could be uh, potentially more fair and so on. But of course, as, as we know, you know, the natural monopolistic uh, I'm speaking in a week that uh, we had Sprint and and uh, T-Mobile merge together. Uh, the natural tendency is for these things to accumulate, grow back into large monopolistic players. So, um, I mean, it took an act of the federal government to get uh, interoperation of text messaging services across the various mobile phone providers. Uh, because they naturally believed that they would be better off not interconnecting, right? It took it took legal action to get local number portability in the United States so that you could change your phone number from one one mobile phone company to another, right? It required the government to step in because the uh, the well the perceptions of competitive advantage of the people that had these platforms was such that uh, it. You know, they they thought would they'd be better off not providing what is now you know seemingly an obvious and highly beneficial service. I mean, I'd like to be able to text message you, no matter what provider you're using. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's really that's really interesting because we are talking about the platforms that uh, everybody uses, like you know the big GAFAs, you know the, the Amazons, the Facebooks, and and the Googles and the Apples and 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 so on. You can think about. Uh, also, you can think about the, you know, soon, you know, maybe before the corona, now we really don't know what's going to happen with Airbnb, but you could think about Airbnb in this way. You know, you can start talk, thinking about Airbnb in this way. And, um, you know, I see I, I see this, this, and this also resonates a lot with some interesting work that uh, uh, Ben Thompson and Ben uh, Evans have been publishing to later on, late, uh, you know, late in the, in the last couple of months. And, um, uh, you know, it's about looking at these platforms as, as utilities somehow. No? Indeed, the, when, you make, when you made examples, you were talking about the aqueduct, the, the railroads, the AT&T. Uh, so something for which uh, we are used to um, think about that, uh, that society at some point needs to 
step in in terms of governance and in terms of uh, stakeholders' uh, interest uh, being somehow uh, protected from from the government, uh, so that we can ensure that there is some level of trust. Uh, in these utilities because they become so uh, important for our lives. And uh, if we think about these um, platforms as the new utilities, let's say, and this is, again, something that uh, even St. Thompson's have been uh, uh, saying in the latest in the latest pieces. Um, so the question is, uh, where is uh, the innovation you know, then? Because... Uh, you know, we have been used at these uh, um, rounds and in the, at, to these, um, I would say, waves of innovations coming up uh, in, in, you know, the S-curves that uh, Carlotta Perez and others have been thinking about and talking about. But now what, what, what looks like is that on top of such mega platforms, uh, we are seeing innovations uh, that are really, really... Um, I don't want to say I don't want to say irrelevant, but uh, if you think about uh, you know uh, we are we are seeing platforms coming up and marketplaces connecting uh, you know people uh, with celebrities to get uh, uh, birthday wishes. This is an example I did already in a previous podcast, but you know uh, the the point that comes up is you know are we living through a stagnation then? So so um, where is innovation coming from? And if I look at, uh, at you know once we have regulated Facebook and once we have regulated Google and where where is innovation coming from? What are the innovations that we're going to see? And I feel like that we are really stepping into a, a transition here. We are moving beyond markets. You know? So so the innovation that we can expect is going to come through. Um, open networks that somehow are now facing, uh, because they are the, the only institutions that are ready to face this. So these informal networks that we are creating are the only institutions that are ready to face something like the crisis that we are living and uh, are really able to reinvent the idea of work beyond you know, the traditional employer-employee relationship that uh, we are used to in the 20th century. So, so where is the institution of the 20th, the 21st century coming up? It's for sure, it's not going to come up from Google, as I understand. And uh, if yes, uh, what kind of shapes are they having, and how uh, these institutions are going to reinvent work and meaning in this age of crisis? Well, there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack from what you just laid out. Uh, uh, one thing that occurred early in, in the, the last uh, set of ideas that you laid out, uh, I was thinking of, of uh, the, the, the approach that some organizations have taken who have built platforms and have taken steps to actively prevent innovation on top of the platform. One example of that is the famous case of Twitter that for a period of time allowed innovation on top of the platform. They, they said, well, we will allow people to build, for example, Twitter clients or other tools <clears throat> that could take advantage of the data inside of Twitter. Um, for example, at first, you may recall, Twitter was doing nothing at all with hashtags except for allowing you to search for them, but they, they didn't actually use them in any <clears throat> you know, sensible way. But the simple case of Twitter clients, there was dozens, hundreds of people were building different clients and experimenting with different sorts of things that could be done with them. And then one fateful day, Twitter, because of its board of directors, uh, finally, uh, or apparently, uh, decided to shut off that innovation. And all of a sudden, the platform was 
closed. And it was the only innovation that was being allowed after that point was, you know, done by Twitter itself. And, and to a great extent, that's one of the many reasons that, you know, Twitter has had such a slow rate of innovation since that day. Um, there's very little innovation and people have commented about it at great length, but you can point directly to that event as a failure of the company to embrace its role as the platform owner, the platform founder, and opening the platform up to experimentation and innovation by other people. And, you know, to some extent, um, I think that's, that's a, a lesson to be learned. Uh, um, and and it, it, I, I'm not recommending or suggesting somehow Twitter will wake up one day and come out, come out of its sense. You know, it, it's funk. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But the point is that it's, it's in the hands of a platform owner at various points to make these fateful decisions and to perhaps uh, intentionally block uh, for whatever reasons. And, um, you know, uh, that innovation from happening. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the classic example that, you know, was sort of the beginning of one of my uh, forays into this area was um, the lack of interoperability between the instant messaging services back in the day where AOL was the dominant player and it didn't allow cross messaging to Microsoft's product, for example. And um, they just didn't want to do it because they thought, it was best for them that if people, you know, had to use their service, they'd be better off. Um, and it, that was debated by the um, the FCC when AOL was in the process of acquiring Time Warner. They considered forcing that, and then they decided not to. They went a different direction. So I think that was a, a, a dam damaging for us in in the in the world of you know uh, commerce, our economy, because it would have been. Um, it would have been beneficial for people if we could have had a free, you know, collection of uh, interoperable uh, instant messaging products. Um, it's sort of been obviated by as the thing we talked about earlier. You know, people can text message each other now, and, and the rise of other alternatives. <laughs> but the 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 point I'm getting at is it's it, there's this inherent power in the person who sets up the the platform. <clears throat> the the interesting thing is that people that are building platforms now, as opposed to, say, Twitter, back in its, you know, uh, the point at which it made that fateful decision, as a lot of them are intentionally setting up the platform with the goal of attracting people to join the platform and work on it. My, my fam favorite example these days is the Rent the Runway company, which is, I guess, just in the U.S., so it might not be that familiar to people outside, but um, it's basically... I think a, it's pretty familiar, yeah. Yeah, it's a mechanism for women to basically rent clothing and to hold on to it as long as they want. And they have a subscri subscription model where you can have a certain number of pieces of clothing in your closet. And when you're, quote-unquote, done with it, when you've decided it's no more fun or whatever, or or you, a button pops off of it, you send it back and, um, and rent the runway, then, you know, cleans it, Shows the button back on, whatever. <laughs> it's been very, very successful. It's grown quickly to being a multi-billion dollar enterprise. The thing that's been fascinating is to see how, at first, the well-established designers, the, the manufacturers of women's clothing, did not want to play with them and forced um, Rent the Runway to actually buy 
the uh, clothing and own it all themselves in order to rent it to its customers. And what has happened, though, is as it has grown in prominence and people start to see the value of the notion of this revolutionary way of thinking about, you know, uh, having access to a virtual closet of clothing and not actually owning it, um, more and more of them have come aboard and they're building on the platform that's provided by Rent the Runway um, and relying on their capabilities for fulfillment and returns and all that sort of thing. Um, that has happened very quickly. It's a classic S curve, as you were saying. So we've seen, you know, reluctance, 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 then the knee of the, 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 the curve, the asymptote of the curve, zoom. And now you're seeing that, that very fast growth as more and more designers are joining the platform and getting the benefits of it. And of course, then you have, you know, the classic network effects, right? Everyone's benefited by every new participant that joins um, and starts to participate on top of the platform for Rent the Runway. Rent the Runway benefits, and so do all of the other participants because the, the greater the selection, uh, the more people are likely to join and so on, you know, the classic double loop of, you know, network effects. And everyone's learning from it because they have all this data now that they didn't have before because um, they can really find out what kind of things people like. If the cost barrier isn't the primary factor determining whether or not somebody somebody wants to try out a dress or something, um, because people are not forced with, you know, paying a thousand dollars for that dress. They can just try it one weekend. You know, it's, it's a fascinating uh, example. Um, and it shows all the benefits. Of course, if there is still the question, right? At some point you have to say, well, is it going to be fair? Who is going to manage and monitor whether or not the rent, the runway corporation is taking too much of the profits out or whatever, because of the state of where we're at, it seems that established designers have a lot of uh, power. There's not a, a great imbalance of power, at least at this point. But if if Rent the Runway grows so vast, if it becomes an Amazon and it starts to, for example, uh, you know, starts to design and and rent its own lines of clothing, you know, then we're going to start to see the problems that have happened in so many other platforms like Amazon, you know, the, the complaint that Amazon is selling its own products, you know, against the interest of the players that uh, have, you know, participated as, uh, you know, building their own Amazon stores. So, so you know, we, we always come back to the same set of constraints, which is who has benefited by the actions that are taken by the players in, in, the, in the ecosystem. And so in the perfect world, you'd like to imagine that ecosystems will be fair and all will benefit from the network effects, but um, there is the likelihood of, you know, sort of, uh, you know, it power imbalances that could, you know, uh, diminish the positive benefits of, of the platforms. And of course, then the other part of the, the questions you asked is about the shapes of the organizations that, that grow in this. And, I, you know, the example of Rent the Runway, you can imagine that participating in the Rent the Runway platform will change the shape of the organizations the uh, designers have that, you know, they're if they are going to shift away from the, the conventional model of uh, design, uh, you know, clothing design companies and move to a model where they're not trying to sell them in 
you know, uh, Nordstrom, they're, they're moving more to a model where people are renting their clothes through Rent the Runway or Rent the Runway's alternatives, um, their, their, their organizations will change shape. They'll be more focused on um, interacting with platforms and less, you know, conventional relationships with department stores, for example. And that's going to be a, you know, I think that's going to be a relatively fast uh, transition. I mean, witnessing the, the collapse of retail and, you know, and of course, coronavirus always plays a, uh, you know, it's like the, the joker in the deck at this point. But, um, you know, even prior to coronavirus, um, it was clear that uh, uh, retail was doing some vast restructurings and um, largely because of e-commerce and now, you know, this sort of next generation of, of e-commerce thinking, which is uh, clothing rental. Um, strangely enough, really hasn't had a big impact yet on, on men's clothing. And, you know, that might be about psychology of men and how they think about their clothes or something. But it's obviously having a very uh, profound impact on at least professional women in the U.S. So I think it's it's exactly the same, you know, set of principles that are happening in, in things that we talk about a lot, you know, like Uber and Airbnb and so on. Yeah, I'm happy you mentioned like, psychology because I wanted to also... Uh, go in into that a little bit because so when you talk it's 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 sort of um, sounds like we're moving into more these ecosystemic uh, organizations where the the boundaries between who is consuming and who is producing is is sort of blurred because the consumers take an active role in in shaping the platform company um, so I wanted to maybe come back to that. Uh, if that's the case, that the the sort of responsibility or the for for different decisions and so on is shifted very much to an individual that is active in this kind of ecosystem. Uh, how do you see this? Um, because I mean, there is a lot of um, also critiques from platforms in terms of the workers who might be less protected. So it, it requires really a lot uh, from individuals to rethink how their role basically in an economy. So I'd be curious to hear your, your thoughts on that. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, there's a couple of things in the Rent the Runway story that are really indi- in indicators of how, this, how different this is. Um, one of the things that many of the design firms were saying is that they had a very indirect way of figuring out what, what consumers actually wanted to you know, buy or wear, right? Um, and in fact, they didn't really know much except through focus groups and, and, you know, classic research techniques about what, in this case, what women wanted to wear. The only thing they knew is what women wanted to buy, right? And, or were willing to buy. So that, that changed profoundly. One of the things that was really fascinating in this, uh, this, this case study is that the people that rent the runway to begin with believed that subscriptions weren't what people wanted. They thought that it was going to be sort of one-off things where people would like rent a fancy dress to go to a party or for, to go into a wedding. And then they wouldn't, you know, uh, and then they would send the dress back, right? It was, it was the women who were using the service who sort of pushed them towards subscriptions because they wouldn't send the things back, <laughs> right? They'd rent a couple of pieces of clothing and hang on to them. Um, and so it, it evolved the interaction with the, with the, uh, 
the, the sort of power users, if you will, who took the service and, and pushed it in this direction that led to the subscription model, which is the thing that has led to the, you know, you know, the real advance of this. And now, of course, they have all this data about things that people look at and then rent, how long they hold on to them, what frequency are, are, are different people you know, turning clothes over, what's their average usage, and so on. <clears throat> and um, that data is now accessible. First of all, it was accessible to Rent the Runway, and now to the, the design firms that are putting their clothes on the platform, they have access to this data, which is a, different, a completely different kind of data than they had before. Because what they had before is like sales at department stores and so on. And a lot of times they sort of lost track of their clothing, right? You know, a department store would have clothes. They'd put it in a consignment to get it off the shelves and it went to some third party retail and so on. So they lost all kinds of track of what, what people were doing with these clothing. Um, well, that's all, you know, fascinating stuff and gives all kinds of reasons why it is that, you know, the designers want to get aboard and, and, and learn from all this. The secondary aspect of this is, you know, maybe this is what you were getting at with the sort of uh, notion of people's impact on the system. But when you realize that they could make, they're making these clothes and they're getting used, the, the ones that are popular are getting used more, right? They don't necessarily sit in someone's closet for four years. When somebody wears something a few times and they decide they're not in love with it, or even if they like it, they'll still send it back right? And then somebody else gets to wear it, right? So there's this sort of natural aspect of this, which is not quite the same as with all these other uh, examples we've talked about. But the, the impact on the clothing industry, the manufacturing, and the, the sustainability of clo clothing is potentially much higher with, uh, with uh, this style of, of clothing, you know, this style of of uh, managing the the clothes um, through rental uh, relationships, it's it's kind of a fascinating side effect, if you will. I mean, it's not necessarily what anyone was intending, but the consequence is that the the clothes are potentially used more, and and uh, by the nature of this sort of replen replenishment model, they're probably in use and maintained more. So there's less waste. There's less you know, people taking the clothes and throwing them in the garbage. And hopefully that that is a different kind of learning that the companies can learn to build things, make clothes and accessories that people want to use and are likely to persist in the system, right? Um, so I think that's a fascinating side effect. Yeah, totally. And uh, you could even take it, um, I suppose, a step further. Uh, we have been talking about this sort of radical transparency when we, you know, in a previous conversations with Michel Bowens uh, in the accounting systems. So if you would have complete transparency in how things were produced, that would also empower the, the customers to to make choices, you know, in terms of their environmental or, or social impact of what they buy. So it's really about that data. Uh, if you make it completely visible uh, to people, uh, that could also really shape the direction of the of the company. Right, and and you know many of these companies were heading in that direction in in a sort of sustainable you know marketing approach. They were they were marketing the fact that their clothes were fairly made, or uh, you know that that people are getting paid a living wage and so on. 
in the, involved in the manufacture, but this carries it to a, a new level, which is, um, yes, this information can be associated with the goods, and, and you can also accumulate all this new data about the life cycle of a, a, a garment that's managed in the system, you know? And, you know, I wonder, would it be of interest to people to know that, you know, five other women have rented this dress? <laughs> you know, I think, you know, uh, I don't know how radically transparent people want to be about that, but, you know, in an, at least in an anonymized level, it might be of interest. I don't know. You know, it's the, uh, the life cycle of the clothing itself might be an uh, element of this. Well, well, I, if I can add uh, um, a little bit of a twist to the conversation that uh, you guys uh, made me think about. So, so, so we, we are talking about essentially evolutions of consumption. So we are talking about, uh, you know, the, the transition from products into services and rental models like that. And uh, yeah, of course, this has all these uh, um, partially intended uh, impacts on, on the reduction of uh, impacts and, and sustainability and so on. My question is, is more like, if, if, can we see uh, a new perspective in, uh, where we are more intentional on rethinking organizations? Because I see that uh, the evolution of organizations into platforms, such as you know the example that you made with run, uh, Rent Runway, uh, has been mainly driven by expectations. So this narrative of user experience and convenience. So I don't need to own, I can access to many, many uh, clothes and, and so on. But my question is... Um, with you know, in relation to your experience in in the ecology of work and how this is evolving, and now also the expectations and the capability of a worker are changing with uh, within time and uh, with these new capabilities and new sense making processes that are happening on social media and beyond, access to open knowledge. Uh, so, is there any way that we can hope or we can expect? some kind of uh, intentional transformation of organizing and work towards something that is much more uh, I, I know, interactive and productive and not necessarily just about you know, consuming in smarter ways and, and uh, going along uh, with this narrative of user experience uh, enhancements. Well, I, I, I think so, obviously. Um, I think what we're seeing in some of these companies or and, and other companies – uh, that are trying to create a platform on which work gets uh, parceled out, delivered, managed, uh, directed. Um, I think, you know, the example that you and I share in common, Simone, is, uh, you know, Hire, for example, where, where they've spent a tremendous amount of time and energy building over the last decade, a collection of technologies on which they, in fact, try to manage a very different kind of organizational structure that's based on very small, nimble, uh, entrepreneurially oriented, customer-centered uh, uh, micro-enterprises, right? And that the organization exists in order to allow those micro-enterprises to be successful, in essence. And people, you know, join them, form them, uh, dissolve them, whatever, um, around the notion of building products that meet the needs of customers in very specific ways, you know, in their case, largely appliances of various kinds. But the, um, the, the, the delivery from the viewpoint of the consumer doesn't, 
seems very, very different. And more importantly, the experience of workers inside those organizations is, is radically different. My, my perception, I have not actually worked inside of hire. I'm just a, <clears throat> a perceiver of what I've, I've learned about it with my research there. Um, it's radically different. I mean, it's different enough that a great number of people who had been involved in the company at various stages of the way found it disorienting and difficult to work and have left, you know, and new people have come and joined and, and learned the ways and so on. But um, it's different, so different from the normal notions of hierarchical command and control organizations, or even more uh, progressive organizations, it's still so phenomenally different that I think it's very difficult. And this is, you know, the paradox of the higher story is it's been a very, very successful company, but very few other companies have tried to adopt the principles that animate it um, and actively, you know, emulate what they do. I mean, there are companies, many other companies that have taken similar paths or some set of similar ideas and put them in place. Uh, you know, Kyocera, the, you know, their amoeba organization is very similar, actually predates some of the higher stuff. Um, and it's based on some of the same notions of highly entrepreneurial small groups inside of an organization that is designed to support, uh, you know, highly entrepreneurial small groups and the, the role of senior management uh, is to make sure that such an organization, uh, you know, operates, you know, basically, you know, be the bloodstream, be the ner nervous system that allows uh, the, the different organs of a, of a organic kind of a ecosystemic organization to exist. It's a very different model. And the transition from, you know, sort of conventional uh, managerial neoliberal era uh, you know, uh, management to that is is a radical transformation and uh, one that very few companies have successfully turned. And uh, honestly, I'm not sure. I'm not sure there is a formula that says start here and then you know three three and a half years later you'll you'll be there. I I, I don't see it. No, but the question that I was introducing is: Are you, you know, for example, you, you're talking about higher and or, or Kyocera uh, as ways to uh, overcome the uh, neoliberal management um, paradigms of organizing industrially, let, let's say. And to some extent, I can agree that uh, higher group with uh, Renden Hai uh, that our listeners will will we will be uh, becoming you know uh, used to because we just had an, another podcast conversation with Bill Fisher where we explored that quite widely. Um, I can agree that to some extent RENDNA uh, is a way to unframe the organization from some of the neoliberal uh, patterns that have framed the organization, the industrial organization for so long, with this, uh, especially with this call towards, you know, entrepreneurship and uh, uh, human expression and uh, and so on. But I feel like it's still, you know, operating mostly within the, the, the frames of uh, modernity capitalism and uh, uh ux you know user experience so getting there you, you know these enterprises exist to create customer experiences essentially i think you're right the uh the, it operates in a world that is the world we live in now so i think there are cases of what goes on inside there that are indicative of the sort of things that we might anticipate being sort of true truths 
to be expected in platforms. And one of them is, for example, they have a kind of distributed governance built into the system. You know, so for example, they have standard contracts that they require the microenterprises to use in their negotiations, in their agreements with each other, because the microenterprises support each other in various ways, and with outside partners. So in a sense, without putting their finger into every deal, you know, the management of hire in a, you know, sets the rules of conduct so that there is some notion of consistency and fairness. And I think that kind of distributed governance is the thing that um, is, is the part, once again, that comes back to the notion of creating a commons. That is, you, you, can, you can have distributed governance so that everybody can rely that the system is going to be fair as defined by the, you know, those, those conventions. And, and I think that's important, and that's what makes, that makes it possible for people to operate as members of the ecosystem without worrying that they have to cover their back all the time. That's very interesting in the case of Hire because uh, I feel like also external organizations are learning to trust Hire as a common. So to some extent, of course, uh, but uh, when they, for example, prototype their new organizational artifact of the e- ecosystem micro community that, just to clarify to our listeners, is a kind of uh, uh, system of companies that are both inside and outside the organization sharing a common, uh, I would say, a common mission. And th- these companies from the outside, they totally trust and and, and inter- inter- interoperate with uh, uh, companies inside the group through this uh, smart contracting technology that the higher has is using. And again, we are seeing these patterns coming up also in other places. You, you mentioned Kyocera, that is also, you know, uh, before that, but we, we uh, I was at the Tracker Forum and I was exposed to, uh, if I'm not wrong, I was... Uh, uh, a gaming, a gaming company from China. I don't remember if it was uh, Alibaba Group, uh, if I'm not wrong, or something like that. Uh, so, so especially in China, these patterns are, are coming up often and more often, no, because of the success of higher. My, my, my question is: in this process, you know, that we are starting to to see, you know, for example, with higher, but other also other organizations that that are in Europe and the US, Boards.org or, or others. Uh, do we see? A possibility for the entrepreneur to to I would say uh, interact with an organization and a brand that uh, has overcome the narrative of uh, user experience. So so actively an organization that actually actively exists to let entrepreneurs to enterprise. I don't want to say outside the market, but maybe to produce different form different kinds of services that are more essential, less, um, I would say, less consumeristic, uh, much more uh, into regenerating environments, for example, or just, you know, producing basic services um, uh, such as, you know, food or energy or something like that. Do you see some of the brands you have been working with or some of the stories you have listened to uh, moving into this post, uh, you know, somehow having the energy to approach this epistemic crisis that we're also living, this meaning crisis that we're also living. Well, you know, I've seen a lot of I've seen a lot of activities where um, things are much more well, it's it's more tangible and less consumer oriented. So, for example, initiatives like um, the reconstruction of 
the waterfront neighborhoods in St. Louis, I mean, pardon me, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, um, which is being driven largely by a collection of uh, investors who are basically revitalizing a community that was mostly abandoned buildings and you know had something like 16, I think it was 1,600 uh, housing units, for example, that were uh, you know abandoned, empty and falling apart and also taking over old manufacturing space and so on. And with the intention of candidly making money, but, you know, building an ecosystem of, of companies that were doing things like, you know, refashioning the, the, the real estate, uh, coming in and opening new restaurants, uh, building new grocery stores. So, you know, this revitalization of a neighborhood um, and to the benefit of obviously to begin with the people that weren't there yet, you know, that was, it's going to benefit the people that will be living there for the next 20 years. Um, and, uh, people in the uh, uh, surrounding area are going to move over to these newer, you know, nicer, uh, uh, neighborhoods, um, and getting the benefit of, of, of that, uh, investment, but mostly the investments being made by an ecosystem of, of, people that are moving into the area and investing their time and energy to get it off the ground. And I think that's fascinating. So uh, it's an example of something that on some level is about capitalism, but it's not naked, you know, capitalism, hyper-capitalistic exploitation. It's not where somebody takes control of everything and owns and runs everything or something. Um, So I think that's a fascinating example of, you know, sort of willing into existence uh, an ecosystem of companies who are united and going in the generally same direction, right? But they're not, it's, there's no central committee deciding anything. Uh, You know, there's a distributed set of ideas that are shared among the participants. And I think the same sort of thing is likely to emerge over and over again, sort of public partnerships, public-private partnerships. that will be building on these sort of platform concepts, even if the platform in this case is the actual, you know, territory, this neighborhood is the platform. The landscape at the end of the day. So so I think it's really, really interesting. You know, I, I think sometimes we have this idea of the future of organizing that is so very technological or, or, or exotic. And I, we, we may end up in being surprised that the future of organizing is about, you know, um, as you, as you said, you know, so uh, making some pla- the place you live more resilient, or or just you know creating infrastructure, or it's about you know taking care of each other. Um, so mm-hmm. so for example, when we were talking, I was I was thinking about another entrepreneurial project that we can definitely think of as a platform that is uh, uh, called Participatory City. It's a project mm-hmm. from London where there's this new charity that uh, has this mission to essentially improve. To um, boroughs where where it operates, uh, the, the boroughs of Barking and Dagenham, and uh, it is basically is it, it has a very interesting, for example, it runs a, a warehouse where people can work and enterprise in in you know creating you know uh, crafts or food or and so on, and they also have a business incubator where they are trying to to incubate a uh, hundred new businesses for these two boroughs in the next uh, in the next uh, uh, few years. 
uh, in a way, essentially, you know, exaggeratedly improving the quality of, of the place where they live. And, and at the same time, of course, also the, the, the value of the properties that they own right. somehow. Right. So so it's when you say it's capitalistic, but with another um, shade of capitalism, I would say it's more entrepreneurial than, than, than capitalistic, you know. So it's really about uh, enterprising together for the, for, for the benefits of... Uh, of many, and it's actually uh, configured itself as a common. Right, and it comes down to the same questions, which is the distribution of value. If it's done in a fair way and people aren't harmed so that others are benefiting, then that's, mm-hmm. that's you know, the sort of foundational notion of, like, the commons, right? The, that uh, we, we, we all, you know, benefit uh, from the... The results and if if we if we make this uh, maybe as a last uh, reflection for this conversation, if we make uh, a reflection based on our experience and also understanding of organizational models and tools and capabilities that people uh, will need to have, what is your impression in terms of uh, if you think about this new wave of enterprising and this new wave of organizing that looks like looks like much more distributed and small and 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 care driven and and community driven and landscape oriented and uh, what kind of organizational models are we gonna use? Uh, what kind of organizational governance approaches are we gonna use? Well, I, I'm I, I constantly come back to comments that have been made by several people that have had a big influence on my thinking in this area. And the one is uh, uh, McChrystal, who in his Team of Teams book, he, he said his role as head of the joint command for the army in Iraq was ultimately to be more like a gardener than a general. And he was trying to create a context in which his team of teams model of management could support the independent semi-autonomous actions being taken by uh, small teams in order to affect what they needed to get done uh, and to stay inside of the information loop that you know defined their 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 world um, and that's very similar to you know the fog of war that we all find ourselves in in uh, in the world of business. Um, so it's going to take the the creation or the uh, you know discovery of those kind of leaders who have that sort of servant leadership mindset and uh, take their time and energy in creating a context in which others can be very successful. <laughs> in the, the various activities they choose for themselves inside of an ecosystem model uh, enterprise or network of enterprises. And so that's, the I think, the stumbling block for us today is we have to find these people, we have to create them, we have to get them in charge of organizations. I was reading a, a thing yesterday in the Harvard Business Review by uh, uh, Chamorro Prusak, one of my favorite guys, and... Uh, uh, you know, he, it, it was a story about how leadership has to take on more of the characteristics of women to be more effective. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the, the reality is that that's true. We have to respect and uh, uh, adopt a different set of uh, psychological characteristics in our leaders uh, in, in, in order to uh, be able to make this transition. And that's the missing piece, I think, in most business. Yeah, we, 
We've also talked a lot about in in previous conversation about the role of education, and maybe that's just more like a, a closing comment on my end. Is is sort of uh, it, we see quite clearly that we will need to make people more prepared to become entrepreneurs and to to embrace new ways of working, and we're probably going to see that. Uh, you know, even even more in in this period and this uncertainty that we start to live in, it's something that people will have to learn how to embrace uncertainty in the probably more in a way that an entrepreneur does more naturally. And I think that's a great challenge in in this new economy that we see emerging. That um, it, it's something that, for example, our education system is not really doing at the moment, and and something that we will need to uh, to see to. So that in order to make that kind of fair distribution and and value sharing that you were talking about. Right. You know, I, th I think it's foundational, but it's also like it's not just education. It's I think it's, you know, societal norms have to you know shift. And and who knows, you know, one uh, I, I, I came up with the quote on something I wrote yesterday from Carl Jung, which is like uh, in every, in all chaos, there is a cosmos in in all disorder, there is order. And I, and I said, after I quoted him, I said, well, I hope he's right <laughs> because we are definitely in the mess. Um, and if we're going to get our way through it, um, we have hope, we have to hope that there is a, an opportunity for some kind of new order, um, you know, post Corona. Uh, and, uh, I also believe that the best lever for us to make changes in society is to change the way the world of business works. So um, I think I think we we have an obligation. Those of us who are, you know, ob observers, our students of this, to try to push it in the right direction to how, to the extent that we can. This quote from Young uh, is, I think, really good to to as a closure. And also, I love that. And uh, I think uh, somehow is uh, uh, one of the filters that we are using in this exploration with uh, with Sina and the other colleagues that are running with us, with me, this this podcasting and this research. That uh, yeah, it's gonna be a messy transition. Uh, it's gonna be full of paradoxes. Uh, we're gonna have uh, many many uh, different. Um, uh, I would say uh, seemingly conflicting patterns coexisting. You know, so so, yeah. I think uh, chaos and and uh, uh, and cosmos are good ways to uh, frame this uh, transition in a way that seems like the one that is going to happen. So th thanks very much, uh, Stove. One thing I would like to ask you is to tell people where they can find more of your work. The best place to look is um, on Medium. And that's medium.com slash work hyphen futures. And I'm at medium, you know, at Stoboid. That that connects you to all my writing there. Yes. And they can also record, register to your um, newsletter, Work Futures, right? Yep. Yep. Thanks very much, Stove. It was great conversation. And uh, uh, Sina, do you want to add something more? Otherwise, we can close it. Thanks a lot. It was really interesting. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Boundaryless Conversation Podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media and subscribe to our podcast by looking up for Boundaryless Conversation Podcast on all major podcasting platforms. 
stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for more general research updates, where you can also find opportunities for learning and free tools for you and your team to design platform strategies in these turbulent times. This podcast has been brought to you by our research sponsor, Intesa San Paolo. We want to also thank Walter Mobilio at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.